All right, so I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but this is the beginning of the end, okay? This is the turning point in the book of Esther, after which we start to see the momentum switch from being so overwhelmingly against God's people to slowly but surely shifting and transitioning in ways that become just increasingly dramatic and accumulative as we go, right? This chapter is the most, has the most well-known quotes from the book of Esther in it. Verse 14, like, right, uh, for such a time as this, it's, the, it's, it's dramatic rhetoric. There's, there's, there's this interplay between them through an intermediary. It has the closest, it, it comes the closest to referencing God in the book of Esther, but still implicitly leaves him out. And it also has this incredibly profound transformation that happens with Mordecai and Esther. To uh, quote Gandalf, because I'm on a roll with Lord of the Rings, uh, Gandalf, uh, when he came back as Gandalf the White, he said, Be merry, we meet again at the turning point of the tide. A great storm is coming, but the tide has turned. That is this moment. Right? It's not that there aren't any more battles to be fought, and it's not that the drama is going to ease and everything, but this is the point where everything starts to change. And that happens especially in a, a kind of a subtle, and if you don't, you don't really, it's easy to miss how profound of a transformation we see in Mordecai and Esther, right? Mordecai's transformation is first. And we started, like, we kind of got into the first part of it last week, right? He went from telling Esther, hide your Jewishness, to, no, I'm not bowing, and it's because I'm a Jew, right? He went from, keep your head down, to, Risk it all, and maybe this is why you're here. His, and my favorite part of this, it, it, like, it hit me between the eyes pretty, I don't want to say, like, maybe even when I read this the first time, was when he says his encouragement, his assurance to Esther, when she says, you know, I'm not, I'm not what you're looking for, right? I'm not the rescue you're looking for. I haven't seen the king in 30 days. I'm out of his favor. If I walk in, I'm dead. The reassurance Mordecai gives is, you're dead anyway. Like, like, make no mistake, that's guaranteed if you don't. And it, what's, what he's implying is God is going to rescue his people. And he might be using you, but if, if that's not the case, then you're dead anyway. <laughs> Like, it is, isn't that so opposite, the, the reassurance we try to give each other when we're talking about something that's really risky? We, we say, hey, you know what, only you can do it. And, and you'll be fine, you'll be safe. God's got you, and only you can do it. And Mordecai's is the opposite. He's like, no, no, anybody can do it, because God's going to use them. And you might die. And Esther's like, okay, well, if I perish, I perish. Her transformation is, 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 is maybe even, even more dramatic, though, right? She goes from a concubine uh, chameleon, right? She is blending in, doing her best to make everybody happy and, and be perceived favorably to a commanding queen. Uh, I can't remember if it's either, it's either 12 or 13 times out of 14. She's referred to as Queen Esther and not just Esther. 12 or 13, whichever one it is, out of 14, comes from this point on and not before. It's implying that this is the moment she starts acting like a queen 
that God has placed as a rescuer of God's people. It's at this moment that she goes from from pawn controlled by circumstances to a judo master turning her opponent's momentum against them, right? Did you notice that how it said Mordecai ordered her? And then she says, I'm going to go tell, you, you go order Mordecai to gather the Jews. The, and, and it doesn't switch back ever for the rest of the book. She's the one giving orders from now on. That's significant. This is a, a profound transformation and in both of them. And they're both suddenly going from kind of self-preservation to what, what we'll call it a risky mediation. And, and the switch is with a boldness that is as extreme as their previous hiddenness. Now, when I use that word mediation, I'm, I'm talking about more than just boldness. I'm talking about like, like stewardship, which is a concept we've talked about a lot here lately. Um, right? In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will make your name great and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. That covenantal promise God gives Abraham is, 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 is as a mediating nation, is a mediating people. They are to steward God's blessing for the good of others. It, he, it's reiterated in Jeremiah 29. As God's people are being carried into exile in Babylon, Jeremiah says in chapter 29, God through Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city that I have placed you. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is all language of mediation. And it incurs this kind of missional responsibility that we see modeled in their transformation here. A self-forgetful and a self-giving flourishing of others. And what's crazy, like they, they actually appreciate, they, they realize how big of a deal that is. The responsibility that they're embracing to, to be mediators on, the, on behalf of others is massive, such that for the first time we have a hint of something religious happening. And they start, he says, she says, tell the Jewish people to fast from three, for three days, and I and my ladies-in-waiting will as well, to fast. Dr. Doug Kelly says that fasting is grabbing the throne of God with both hands. I love that. Fasting is grabbing the throne of God with both hands. It implies prayer. It is a self-denial of something intrinsically needed as preparation for a significant event or undertaking and a re-anchoring in the one thing that matters most, which is God. And it is a reminding of that importance and how much God provides and delivers in the midst of it. I'll just say this. It sucked to have this passage come this week. It was terrible to be preaching on the phrase, if I perish, I perish, after a dear friend of ours lost their son. And what is remarkable about this and about Ezra, that at 18, he wrote, it was in the Caring Bridge, messages that people receive. At one point, he wrote at the early point of the leukemia coming back that his biggest disappointment is not being able to share the love of God his freshman year of college and being able to tell people about 
It's the goodness of Jesus in the midst of cancer. The dude is on his literal deathbed and thinking about not being able to share Christ's love with others. What's our excuse? I mean, I got a lot. I'm tired. It's a phase of life that I'm in. Busy. Both Hannah and I work. Can we just recognize that for what it is? What are the risks that we avoid? The mediation that we neglect because it jeopardizes our comfort, our plans, our social standing, or maybe our friendship. It's a life and death thing that we're choosing to avoid. And I say we because it's literally my job, and I'm just as guilty. Now, all this said, there is a, there's a reason for this transformation. Right? I, have, I have two major pet peeves with George R.R. R. Martin. Okay, I have three pet peeves. If you count the fact that how long it takes him to write a stinking book. He's just trying to milk money out of it. That's, that's the point. But there's two, two reasons, two pet peeves I have with George Martin. The first is he stands on Tolkien's shoulders and stabs him in the back at the same time. Not going to go there. It's okay. I'll have that rant outside afterwards if you want. Um, right? Even Boromir, who is played by Sean Bean, he dies at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, and so Martin has to have him play Ned Stark, and so he dies at the end of the first season of Game of Thrones. Look, it's, it's, it's a spa. Come on. It's been out for how long? You... No, you don't get a spoiler alert for that. Um, he's almost as bad as Peter Jackson, but not quite. Anyway, still, still not quite. But the, 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 the serious thing that, that I actually have a pet peeve about his, his writing is the transformation of his characters are so arbitrary. Like, if, you've, if you have read any of his books and not just watched the show, it's, it's, you actually feel for the actors because they really struggle to, to make their transformation from, like, wicked people like Jamie Lannister into someone who, who might have heroism in him. Like, there's no external catalyst for that internal change. The only person who gets close is, is Tyrion in the show, played by Peter Dinklage, and that's because Peter Dinklage is an incredible actor who made the show worth it at all. Anyway... I say all this because their, their transformation is not arbitrary either, Mordecai and Esther's. That there is something that happened that is not obvious from the text and in terms of our reading it, but it would have been completely obvious and, and duh to the original audience reading this. And that is identification with God's people. That when they made the move and the switch to identifying with and as Israel as being Jews, that changed everything. That was the catalyst for the boldness and the freedom that we see them model in Esther chapter 4. You see, both are caught between two worlds. It's even in their name, right? We talked about how Esther means hidden, right? Mordecai, Mordecai means follower of Marduk. Marduk is the Babylonian god of war, Right? They are as hidden and incognito as possible, and they live between these two worlds. And finally, the one that matters, the one that's ultimate, becomes, comes to the foreground. See, the only way we even know that they are Jewish up until this point is because 
Mordecai is telling Esther to keep it secret. That repetition in Esther chapters 1 through 3 is part of the point. They're not identifying with God's people because it would make life harder. Like this is connected to the transformation we saw, right? Because you and I, we might live hiddenly or put distance between us and other Christians in order to right, maybe climb the, social, the, the corporate ladder. Maybe it's to, to fit in with our peers, to avoid conflict, etc., 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 right? We believe this lie that conformity is worth it worth the cost because it brings success or safety. But the cost is far more than we give it credit for. Our relationship, and this is, this, is, this is why this is the catalyst for them, our relationship with God's people, with the church for us and for them, Israel, is, a, is often a diagnostic of our relationship with God. Right? In other words, how and to what degree we identify with the church in our posture toward the church is a catalyst for how and to what degree we believe God identifies with us. Here, let me give you some examples to make this more clear, right? If our posture toward the church is enabling in that we see the church as perfect and sinless and gloss over wrongs, if that's our posture toward the church, then you will likely believe that God looks at you with similarly impotent, hollow, and cheap love. It's just not satisfying because it hasn't done, taken stock of sin, if, you, if your posture toward the church is judgmental, like the church is you know, just a bunch of mere sinners, it's uh, you know, unenlightened, you know, those in the church, Christians are bigots, then you will believe that God looks at you with a similarly harsh and ungracious love. Because you see it so clearly in others, you must see it in yourself as well. If your posture toward the church is consumeristic, in other words, the church is this kind of a la carte uh, deal for my happiness and not necessarily for my neighbor's good, we'll maybe get to that if I ever feel the, feel the black hole of desire that is my heart. If that's your posture, then you will start to believe that God looks at you with a similarly distant, uncaring, and unreliable love. It's, it's abusive, actually to use somebody that way, and you will, th- you will start to believe that God is abusive. If, you are, if your posture toward the church is hostile, then the church becomes dangerous, unavoidably, and, and the church is dangerous or unavoidably abusive by its very nature, like, there's, like it's going to happen. If that is your posture, then you will start to believe that God looks at you with a similarly suspicious, self-preserving love. Well, he's like, I don't know if I want to get involved in that because I won't come out unhurt. First of all, that last one is the worst of all the ones I mentioned because self-preserving love isn't. It's, the, it's literally the opposite of the gospel. And we can't actually live with that kind of a God, so we end up ditching him. It's not a long-term sustainable thing. How you live and your posture towards the church backfills into your heart. And that's how you start to think that God sees you. In other words, another way of saying this is that staying hidden makes God seem hidden. As a Jew, Mordecai understood as like faith 101, what we catastrophically forget in a modern individualistic Western culture, and that is that faithfulness is unavoidably costly, that you can't mitigate that past a certain point, 
I mean, you can be like, okay, let me just kind of name something here real quick and anticipate an objection. There's a difference between experiencing persecution because you're being faithful to the love of God, and there's a difference between experiencing persecution because you're a jerk. I'm not talking about that second one. That's deserved. <laughs> right? The other one is not deserved, but it's still normative, and we should expect it at the same time. See, what they know and what we don't understand is that abandoning God's people also abandons the vehicle of our rescue. I want to unpack this a little bit, right? I'm not saying that the church saves you. The church does not save. God does. But to use an analogy that's not Lord of the Rings for the first time, if you refuse to stay in a life raft because you'd rather swim by yourself than float with fools, you are going to drown, right? And that's even, even if you're a strong enough swimmer to tread water, and by the way, you're not, but even if you think you are, and maybe, let's say just for the sake of argument, you, you are, then the, the current is still going to pull you away from the bright yellow beacon that the rescuer himself is searching for. And yes, to anticipate a question, I'll probably get in the Q&A, yes, Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go search for that one who has floated elsewhere, but I want to point out two things about that, that parable, parable that Jesus teaches. Number one, sheep are real dumb. Sheep are really, really dumb. Okay? The metaphor applies that wandering off is foolish. So yeah, I guess if the shoe fits, you can be the one, the one of the 99. That's totally fine. More importantly, once he finds us, the shepherd doesn't just hang out with the sheep wherever the sheep is. The shepherd hauls your fuzzy butt back, kicking and screaming if necessary, to the safety of the flock or the life raft, wherever the rescue is. And he has said that that is in the church. I made this point with, if you were in the church membership class, I, I, I think at some point I said that if you're not serious about church membership, then you're not really serious about following Jesus either. That's, ac that's accurate. Mordecai and Esther understood that. Because they understood that, they understood the power of God's faithfulness, covenantal faithfulness to his people, and how that power and that security would afford them the freedom to risk everything because they actually risk nothing. That is incredible. That is very antithetical to an individualistic culture like ours. Okay, here, here's my last point before we move into the Q&A, and that is Mordecai and Esther's rescue. I had never seen this book. I've read Esther a few times before. I've never preached on this book, but I had never seen before that there is a direct allusion to another book in the way that the dialogue back and forth is, is being said between Mordecai and Esther, and it comes from Joel chapter 2. Everything underlined on the screen behind me is, is a copy-paste parallel in the language that we just read earlier, which says, But yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? In the same way that Mordecai said, who knows? Maybe you have come, and the language of have come, that's passive. 
as in maybe you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. There's Mordecai's part. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. The word assembly there is the same way he says, when he, she says gather the Jews. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. It's just... It's making, it's, it's, it is implying and making this illusion that even though God is explicitly left out in the book of Esther, he is at the forefront of their rescue. That it is he who does it. The catalyst for their transformation is because in their identification with God's people, God rescues his people and they are freed from any fear or concern or worry. It also points to the greater rescue in Jesus because Joel is, is as a, a prophetic book that so much of, the, of what he wrote is, is messianic as well in that unlike our mediating, Jesus did it once and for all, right? Ours is ongoing and we keep doing it and it may or may not stick. It may or may not cost us anything. It cost Jesus everything and it stuck for eternity, he secured our ultimate rescue, and he still mediates for us as our great high priest. That's what Hebrews is, is talking about. And Jesus did way more than just identify with us. He incarnated among us. His destiny, our destiny became his destiny so that his destiny would become our destiny. Our death would become his, his life would become ours. You want to know what God's posture toward you actually is in ways that transcend is actually true and is not contingent on your posture toward the church, regardless of your posture toward the church. I hope you heard how careful I was to say, you will think that God sees you this way. That is not ever the case because God's posture toward you actually is that he sees you as part of this jacked up family, whether you want to be part of it or not. Thank God, right? He didn't start working and maneuvering things behind the scenes for Esther and Mordecai to be positioned after they identified with, as, as part of God's people. He did that way before then. God is working in your life in ways you don't even know or understand or, or will ever even acknowledge. And thank God because we, all of us, even if you don't want to hang out with, like even if you don't want to hang out with me, it's, it's fine, it's cool. We are all together still the best gift that God can give himself. That's how he sees you. That's his posture toward you. Is that he thinks you are the coolest thing ever. The most beautiful gift, the most extravagant expense is worth it because that's how he sees you, his people. Everything else just pales in comparison to that. Like, if God thinks that about you, why do we even care about the Twitter troll or the random stranger or the coworker or the boss or the neighbor or even our family members? Which, by the way, I can relate to that. I'm the only Christian in my family still. Why do we care what any of them think if that's, what we have, if that's how God sees us, that you're the coolest thing in the world he could ever give himself? This transforms you. 
when you start to get this, when you start to see this. And sacrificial love becomes, because it is, the natural response of a saved people who know they're saved. You can lay it all on the line because there is nothing on the line in Christ. And by the way, if you're doubting that this morning, I just want you to know that just because God is hidden does not mean he is absent or sitting on his hands. He has promised to reveal himself to you. He has revealed himself to you in his word. He is doing so in and through the relationships you have in this church. And he will do so in ways that surprise you and even surprise me. And so let's jump into the Q&A. And I'm I'm actually going to start with a question that we got last week. Because it is, I didn't get to this question last week. Um, It was the only one we didn't get to. And man, did it anticipate exactly where we're going this week. And that question was this. How does one remain faithful and how do you respond when you are misunderstood for your faithfulness? In other words, uh, i.e., non-Christians accusing you of being right-wing fundamentalists because you follow Jesus and go to ch- to, you go to church. Whoever this was, thank you for answering the, asking the question in the first place. Okay? Step one, identify with God's people anyway. Right? Are you God's people? Yes, that's who you are. Absolutely. Then, then you have nothing to be ashamed of in that. And acknowledge that, yes, a faith community that's defined by grace is going to at least include those who are most aware that they are jacked up, and that means that, yes, the church will therefore have more of our fair share of crazy uncles in our family, like disproportionate to the rest of the the population even. That's all valid, because if we are only here by grace, that is by definition the church. You can own that. Jesus did. (laughs) Step two, live as God's people. I was talking about Genesis 12 and Jeremiah 29 earlier. Steward the blessing that you have without fear or concern about how you're perceived and love anyway. Because when Jesus was on the cross, he said, God, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's understandable that so many of our neighbors might think that we believe the psychotic things that are are highlighted on, uh, on Fox News or in social media. And our obligation to love unconditionally does not change. By the way, that's also going to be the most persuasive argument against it. Okay? Also, I want to encourage you, you're in really good company. Jesus was misunderstood a couple times, right? Right? Both accidentally and actively and willfully. Right? He was mischaracterized, not just misunderstood, he was mischaracterized. You're in really good company. And if you weren't experiencing that for a reason that isn't true, you'd probably be experiencing it for a reason that is. If anything, the cultural moment that we're in has lowered the bar in terms of what most non-Christians expect of the church. So when we act even just kind of basically gracious toward others, it's a shock and a surprise and is deeply appreciated. It's training wheels, guys. It's actually a gift that God can use. doesn't make it okay, but he can still use it. Okay, I got several other questions, so let's jump in here. Can hearing the gospel for the first time weekly, etc., cause us to look at God's people differently? For example, 
when we feel the intensity of God's love, we stop being suspicious and critical. Yes, amen, and absolutely. If, I would say, in, in some ways, if the gospel isn't causing you to see God's people differently, you're, not, you're still actually not hearing the gospel through, um, through God's lens. You're hearing it through yours. Like, you're still hearing it through that posture. Like, one of the, I, like I was actually talking to, to, to one of you and processing this very point of, like, how do we, how do we navigate... This really, and by the way, this person I'm referring to has experienced abuse from the church severely. Um, how do we navigate the very real reality that, yes, there are churches and Christians who have done terrible things in, in the name of Christ, and yet at the same time, and, and that's valid, and we should absolutely enter into that experience, love people who have experienced that and understand where they're coming from. And at the same time, that cannot remain our posture toward the church forever. Otherwise, we are cutting ourselves off from God in that. I think that is in and through understanding that if God had not, that if God in Christ has not, has, has subjected himself to our abuse also, and said, Lord, forgive, God, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Then, then God doesn't know about the abuse. But because of that word on the cross that Jesus said, we, we know that, G, that God is not unaware. And if God is who he has said he is, who is someone who has incarnated into our world, who loves us enough to suffer alongside us, even in that then there is no injustice that he cannot redeem, heal, and use. And our gospel has got to include that. That has to be a part of it. I hope my preaching does, and if it doesn't, whoever this is, please come tell me where it's lacking, because that is the hope. Last question. Did you say that if you aren't interested in church membership, you're not interested in following Jesus? I think I misheard. Yes and no. Um, I, I said that a little bit starkly for dramatic effect. Um, what I said, if you're not serious about church membership, then you're not yet serious about following Jesus. And what I mean by that is not the arbitrary aspect of church membership, because you're right, the, the, the thing that we do called church membership is not like a, an, a process that's outlined in Scripture, but the principle is assumed in Scripture such that what we are doing with church membership is an attempt to, to try to quantify what Scripture says about what our posture toward the church should be. And if, you don't, if you're not pursuing or thinking about the church in terms in view of that, then yeah, you don't see, you don't see Jesus' bride the way that he sees his bride. And so you're, you're, you're missing out on something really significant in ways that is absolutely um, a, a countercultural thing for, for all of us in here. You know, it's crazy. I was actually thinking about it this way. Um, I, I mentioned last week about Iran and how there's this kind of revival happening in Iran and you're seeing people come to faith. You know how it's happening? It is happening through technology and media initially through like Zoom and, and crazy things like that. But the, um, I, I heard a missionary in Iran who couldn't reveal his actual name say that it's to the point now that when someone comes to faith, we expect the rest of their family to as well. That's because they're not individualistic like us. 
That actually is the, what the church looks like there is in and through families in ways that we need something that's more formal and structured, not because something is missing or lacking in, in Scripture, but because something's missing culturally for us. An awareness and an appreciation of our interconnectedness that we neglect and still think we can f- we're, we're taking G- following Jesus seriously. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, you're not a Christian, right? Because your being a Christian is not a reflection of how faithful you are, but how faithful Jesus is, okay? I'm not doubting your faith or, or, or casting any dispersion on that. What I'm saying is, man, if you are feeling like anything with your relationship with Jesus is lacking, I, I would ask, what's your posture toward the church? So, the one phrase that I didn't engage with in a whole lot in this part of of Esther, is Esther's response of, if I perish, I perish. And what I love about this, this phrase we often, when faced with reality and the gap between reality and hope, we will often only be able to focus on one or the other, right? We'll be able to acknowledge the reality and how hard and dark a situation or circumstance is, a grief, or we will like tend to gloss over that and, and actually talk about, like, you know, that's not forever, right? The beauty of I, if I perish, I perish, to me, is how much it actually says both of those things. It's acknowledging the reality and the danger of what she's about to do, but a freedom that she has to be able to risk everything because she's not actually risking anything. That is a gift. And it's amazing that Esther was able to say that because we have something she doesn't, which is the table. Which is, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body. It is broken for you. I am tying my destiny to yours so that I might take your death and give you my life. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you declare, you proclaim my death until I return. That proclamation is what we are, is the mediation it is in and through our identification with God's people. We take communion not as individuals, but as a family, as God's people. And in so doing, we are declaring that there is something bigger than any threat or circumstance or danger in the world. That's incredible. And that is freeing. It means that we can be on our deathbed and still be more concerned for our neighbors. It means that in the midst of our stresses of daily life, we can still love well. Not because of anything we have to offer, because of what Jesus has offered already. If that is your hope, even just a little bit, God will nourish that through your participation in communion. And that's what he invites us to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your once and for all sacrifice that does not need to be repeated, 
that does not need to be added to because there is nothing that we can add to what you have already done. And that means that we are, we can be, we can be used by you in ways that we don't even have the imagination or the capacity to understand in things both big and small, intentioned and not intentioned, well-intentioned and selfishly intentioned. Lord, there's nothing that you can't use to restore and renew all things. So God, nourish us. Nourish us toward that end that we might see with new eyes what you may be calling us into. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Come and eat.